Well, we look at this passage again, and we've been in it for three weeks, I think, now, and we are into these Israelites on the verge of entering into Canaan, right? And we have seen many episodes already of this. They're kind of shocking, the way in which God deals with His people and the way in which He reveals Himself in history, haven't we? But I want us to see the beginning of this verse as a bit of an introduction, the beginning of this passage. Look at it again with me. Page 180, for those of you who waited to look in the Bibles, page 180, um, down in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, it says this, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Exactly what we heard Rahab say. The people in Canaan, the Amorites and the Canaanites felt when they saw what God had done with the Israelites when they crossed the Red Sea as they came out of Egypt, right? It's almost take two. And you'll see in just a minute why it's almost take two. In a big way, it is take two. But the interesting thing that I want you to see in the reading of this is I want to challenge you and, and, and tell you not to dismiss this because here in these stories we see the history of the Bible. We see the history of the Bible that makes one story, not multiple stories, that illustrates who one God is. Not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, but one God. One God. The God of our story. And because of Jesus, this is our story. These stories are broken apart as large chapters of redemption, if you will. God has always been more concerned about dealing with our suffering and our sorrow than we have. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of the Scripture is more concerned about dealing with our suffering and sorrow than you are? He's always been more concerned. From the very beginning of Scripture... This problem of what to do with sin entered in. Eve thought that she could deal with it, and so she had a child, and she said, look what I've brought forth, and her son Cain. But because Adam and Eve had sinned, their progeny was sinful and broken, and Cain went on to be the first murderer, right? God demonstrated through Noah that if he flooded the entire world as he did Noah's, that he couldn't deal with sin that way. And in his mercy, he didn't destroy humanity completely then. And now we see this nation of God raised up out of a promise to Abraham through whom he gives the law to this nation through Moses. And he sets the stage for us to understand that we as human beings need something outside of us to deal with our sin and our brokenness, our suffering and our sorrow. And that's what he's doing through these stories. This is a unique period. This is a unique period. God has promised his people who were slaves in Egypt that he's going to give them land, a place where they can be people and where they can worship him and hopefully in their worship of him be a blessing to all the nations of fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, right? But here we see that God tells them, I'm going to drive out the gods before you, and I'm also going to drive out the sin in this nation, in this region. 
He had told Abraham years before in Genesis 15 that the reason that Abraham didn't just go and take the land was because the sin of the people hadn't reached its fulfillment yet. This is a unique period of God's judgment. It's a unique time that doesn't exist anywhere else in the Bible. And the reason we can look at it honestly and, and forthrightly is because we can see how it points us to Jesus and we don't have to fear that if the church gets strong again, maybe the church militant will become violent again. But you see, that's missing what's happening here. And the amazing thing is what we see in these stories time and time again, and we'll see it again today, that as God announces what he's going to do, there are people who are outside of the Israelites who hear him and believe him. As some of you need to hear God and believe him today, who convert and who are welcome to him. This is not a story about genocide of nations. That's not what this is about. This is a story about God judgment from a holy God. It's a story about a God who is dealing with sin. And it's a story today that we see beautifully portraying who Jesus is. So the question for us today is just twofold. That's all it is. We're going to get through this. Don't worry. I know you've got your mind on a couple of other things tonight, right? But not right now. Take it easy. Take a deep breath. And listen. Why are there these signs and these celebrations right before these people enter into the promised land? That ought to be a question that you ought to wonder. Even if you're here today and you're like, I don't know what I think about Jesus, you ought to ask that question. It'd be a reasonable question to ask from this passage. Well, I want you to know that these signs and these celebrations are what set these people apart, what make them sacred, if you will. You're familiar with the term sacred, to be set apart. You're familiar with it because maybe you've heard of the sacraments, Sacraments within Christianity, one of which right before us, the Lord's table, we're going to connect to what we see here in just a minute. The other idea behind sacred is being set apart is how the church is called saints, right? Those who are set apart. And so you who are Christians ought to ask the question, how do these signs affect us, the church? What is going on here? And I want you to see two things in this, that these signs and these celebrations that we have before us, the sacraments here of both circumcision and Passover are about identity and about deliverance. And I want you to see how they get us to the church and get us to Jesus. All right. So look at it with me, if you will. There's an event that we read and the event is shocking. I was with a friend of mine who's been a Christian for almost as long as I've been alive, and, and he heard that I was going to preach about this week, and he goes, isn't it a shocking thing that this happens? Look at what happens in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebreth Ha'araloth. I'll let you look up down at the bottom of the page, what that means. And it'll make you blush. But here's what happened. Joshua said, God said to Joshua, I want you to make flint knives. And one argument is if, if you make knives out of stone, then you can throw them away once they've been used and you can make another knife out of a piece of flint again. That's one argument for these flint knives. But make flint knives 
and circumcised the people a second time. And you go, now that boggles my mind. I thought once you were circumcised, always circumcised. That's very true. That's not, tr- that, that's not the, the same people who have to go through the rite twice. But what's happened here is what's explained to us in the verses that follow. That this is a generation of the Israelites who had not been circumcised as had been the prior generations, i.e. the first time. We have a whole generation of Israelites that have not been circumcised. And here, the right question is to say, why now? Why now do they need to be circumcised? And we read that in verses 4 through 7. Look at it with me. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Don't you love it when Scripture's that clear? It's not always that clear, is it? All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. You remember Numbers 14. You remember Moses sending the spies into the promised land. The spies coming back, 10 out of 12 said, Oh no, this thing is everything that God said it was, but these people will crush us. We're not going in there. Caleb and Joshua said, No, you got to listen. God has set his delight on us, and if he delights in us, he'll give us that land. Don't be afraid. But the Israelites say, No, we're afraid. We're not going to go in. And so they refuse to enter into the promised land. And God says, Because you have refused to obey me, you're not going to see the promised land. And so the people wander in desert for 40 years. And the amazing thing is that these parents didn't circumcise their children. Now, it's hard to really know why, but it's, it's important to recognize the gravity of these people not circumcising their children. The reason it's such a grave situation is because this covenant of circumcision was about their identity related to God. And they had refused to recognize that identity as they wandered through the wilderness. It is because of the parents' unbelief that this covenant sign of circumcision had been lost. And so why circumcise the people now? Verse 8 and 9 read like this. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. I want you to recognize what the Lord has done. The Lord, in calling these people to be circumcised before he uses them as his instruments in the promised land, rolls back one of the reproaches of Egypt to them. One of the things that the Egyptians thought as they recognized the Israelites wandering through the desert all those years is that God isn't with you. God isn't with you. If your God was with you, you wouldn't be wandering in the desert like this. You wouldn't be lost as you are. But God reminds them of this covenant sign of circumcision to roll back the reproach of Egypt against them. God isn't with you. So you remember circumcision in the beginning, right? Genesis 17, the promise that God gives to Abraham. And you know something? This idea of circumcision didn't come from nowhere. We have evidence of it in history as as late as the third millennium B.C. Used in Egypt, even among the priestly class of people 
who would circumcise their youths as they would come into puberty, and then they would let them go crazy sexually when they were healed. This rite of virility and of strength. God uses and He repurposes it for a reason. He sets it not as a sign for puberty, but as a sign at infancy. A sign where they depend upon Him. The physical sign is one of cutting off. It's one of bloodshed. It's a sign that has to do with reproductive promise. The amazing thing is it came to Isaac. Excuse me, it came to Abraham even before Isaac was born. Even before Isaac was conceived, this sign came to Abraham. And Abraham was circumcised as was every youth in his family. This spiritual reality to which circumcision always pointed was humility before God. A willingness to obey, as it says in Leviticus. It is about the circumcising of the heart. The issue of unbelief that covers the human heart as it's referenced in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30. And it's the identity the sign of belonging to God that was given. Listen to how it's written in Deuteronomy 10. Behold the Lord your God to whom belongs heaven and the heavens of heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be not stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes judgment or justice rather for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." This idea of circumcision always had the spiritual import of circumcision of the heart and the identity that says, I belong to Him. I'm related to Him. This first sign is about identity, and the second one I told you that we would look at is about deliverance, and I want you to see it. Here it is in verse 10. Read it again with me. While the people of the Israelites were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. God gives them the sign of circumcision again in His mercy and says, You are identified with Me. And then he gives them the sign of deliverance. And why is that? Why does he give them this celebration, this sacrament of deliverance? You remember where the Passover came from, right? You can flip back in your Bibles to Exodus 12. As the Israelites were leaving Egypt, as the tenth plague, the plague where God would strike down the firstborn of every family and even of the livestock, right? And he told the Israelites... I will pass over your homes if you take the blood of a lamb, a year old, and paint the doorposts and the top of your doors with it. 
And as you eat that lamb before you're sent out of here, the Passover, God in his judgment, he says in Exodus 12, 12, is about to execute his judgment on the gods of the Egyptians, is what it says there, and on the sins. And God is about to execute that judgment. And he gives the Israelite this sign of deliverance. He gives them this sign of deliverance and he said, this is the very first thing you're going to do in your new year. In fact, it marks your new year, is what God says. God said, this is a new day, and it's a new thing that I want you to orient yourself around, this idea of the Passover. And do you know what he says about the Passover? You have to be circumcised to participate in the Passover, is what he says in Exodus 12. Now he says, listen, if there's any foreigner among you who wants to participate in this Passover, let them be circumcised. Let them identify themselves with me in covenant relationship with me, and I will treat them the same way I treat you. But you have to be circumcised to partake of the Passover. So we see why now the Israelites were circumcised. And we see that God gives them this sign of deliverance. Why is that? Because as we read in the very first verse, the people who watch the Israelites know that they are coming because God is coming to judge their God. It just doesn't say the God of the Israelites. It actually says Yahweh. It actually says his personal name. And they recognize that before Yahweh, their hearts melt. And they realize God has come to bring judgment. And to judge the gods and to judge sin. And what's wrong with the Israelites? They're sinful people. And what do they need? They need the sign of deliverance. They need Passover. Look, we're going to get to a story in just a couple of chapters where one of the Israelites steals the stuff from one of the towns. And guess what happens to that Israelite and all of his family? They're judged and they're put to death because God is serious about dealing with sin. He wasn't bringing his people in here to take from somebody else and give to somebody else. It wasn't robbing from the rich to give to the poor. This was God's judgment against the gods of the Canaanites and the kings of the Canaanites knew it. And that's why their hearts melted within them. And you see, both of these signs point forward. Circumcision points forward to the need of, of having something cut off, to, to, the, to, the, to the hope that in reproduction somewhere God would deliver his people. That's why circumcision was repeated generation after generation, done one time for each male. And here in this picture of deliverance is the death of a lamb, slaughtered, that could never really pay the price for sins. But both of these signs, these sacraments, point forward to Christ. And see, that's why the sacraments continue in the church, in perpetuity, if you will, for the church, that the church would be set apart. Because what I want you to see is that Christ has come. And watch what happens with Jesus in these two sacraments. Jesus in Matthew 26, at the celebration of what? The celebration of Passover institutes the Lord's Supper. And he institutes it as a means of deliverance from God's judgment. That's what he writes there. 
John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, there he goes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identifies Jesus as that Passover Lamb. He identifies Jesus as the one. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper at Passover because in his coming, he fulfills the covenant. Jesus does this right before he goes to the cross, the very night that he goes to the cross, because there on the cross, he will enter into battle with sin. He will do it in the same way that God fought the wars in Canaan. And the celebration of the Lord's Supper is the proclamation of a new day. A new day that we have been delivered and forgiven of our sins, even in our new commission, which we'll talk about in just a minute. How about the identity of Passover, of circumcision? If that's the deliverance, how about the identity of circumcision? How do we get that? Well, the amazing thing is that as the Apostle Paul began to write in the first century to groups of Christians in different cities, and as he a Jewish scholar began to put together the glorious way in which, God, in which God had worked throughout all time, writes to the Colossians and he says this to them. Listen to this in the second chapter of the Colossians. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're no longer talking about the circumcision of a male reproductive organ, Right? We're talking about a circumcision that was made without hands. And it goes on in that verse to say, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When was Christ cut off? Christ was cut off at the cross. And we with Christ, anyone who identifies Christ as paying the price for their sins, this verse says that we were circumcised with him there. And listen to what it says in the very next verse. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, buried with Christ in his death, this baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. You see, this circumcision continues on in its perpetuity because Christ was the one who was cut off, who would ultimately pay the price for the sin of anyone who will entrust themselves to him. And so the sign of the church, as Christ fulfills that circumcision, that ratifying of the covenant becomes a sign of baptism into his death with him. And you know that my favorite verse that I quote to you all the time is that I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's this idea of being baptized into Christ, union with him in his death and raised to newness of life. The same two signs before us of deliverance at the table and of identity at baptism. And really, you see the commonality, right? You don't come to the table unless you've been baptized. 
unless you have said, I am identified as his. You see, the problem is today, we have a lot of problems with our church, don't we? We're the church nationally, the church internationally. We say, look, I want to identify with Jesus, but I don't want to identify with the church. <laughs> That's not an option. When we identify with Christ, we are members of his church, identified with his church. It's why we ought to fight for the peace and the purity of the church. Why we ought to long for the church to be refined. But the whole reason is that the church has a commission just like the Israelites were going to do. And you know that is the Great Commission, don't you? When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything that I have said and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you know how Jesus says to do it? Not with weapons of war, but actually taking up our cross and dying. Following him, giving our lives away. This mission that is ours there's one surprise as we end in this passage. I want to show it to you. I want to show you how beautifully it connects to the sacraments of the church. It says this in verse 11. And the day after the Passover, and the day after the Passover, on the very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. They took grain from the promised land and they made their unleavened cakes, which was what they were supposed to do because of the Passover, and their roasted grains. Remember the, the meal of sojourners, the meal of those who are getting out quick. And the manna ceased the day after. They ate of the produce of the land and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. God fulfilled his promises to these Israelites. The very day after they celebrated Passover, by eating of the produce that he provided for them in the promised land, they ate of that that very day. Where is our manna then? If the sacraments work for identity and deliverance, where is our manna? What does that remind you of? Crying out to God for bread. You're about to do it. You do it every Sunday, right? The Lord's Prayer, you know it. Give us this day our daily bread. If you turn to page 869 and you read that prayer, it actually says, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us today what you've promised to give us tomorrow. And then there's this parable that follows, and it's all about bread. You should go read it. If you want more explanation, take me out to lunch. I'll explain it to you more. But do you want to know what the last verse says there? If your fathers who are sinful know how to give you good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Spirit when you ask for it. Do you want to know the promised manna that we have been given today that is really what we will feed off of tomorrow, that day to come? We've been given the Holy Spirit. And it's for this commission that we would be sent out. 
Listen, our lives are not to be lived for ourselves. They're not to be lived for our kingdom. But they are to be lived for God's kingdom. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer. And we celebrate these sacraments in the church every Sunday. That we too might know our identity and our deliverance even as we go out and proclaim the name of Jesus as the only Savior of the world. This is an amazing passage, but it only illustrates for us this covenant renewal that happens right here every Sunday and that we're about to participate in right now. So let's go there together.